Yeah. I like the joke this morning, uh, Michael. I don't know if you saw Duris was making on Twitter whether or not, like, because you know how they cut Toth's route yeah. so they can't go by the hospital. Duris is like, I hope Toth breaks their, you know, route, does their original route anyways. And then he was like, I wonder if NOPD would be authorized to chase them at two miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the Singleton Charter School, which has been plagued by trouble lately, is facing new accusations, and COVID numbers are again down this week. The city of New Orleans is considering rolling back a ban on the use of surveillance cameras after putting those controls in place in 2020. And in-person jury trials are set to resume after a long pause due to the pandemic, and the dockets are extremely full. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. And criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hi, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Marta, the soon-to-close Singleton Charter School run by the Dryads YMCA has been accused now of violating open meetings laws and disbanding the board committee that's supposed to oversee the school. The Dryads-Singleton arrangement was unique. Tell us about how it was structured. You know, right after Katrina, with all these charters popping up in the city, an initial goal of um, some of the authorizing groups was to, you know, really have these rooted in community organizations. So uh, the Dryads YMCA was a, a unique arrangement in that a nonprofit that, you know, actually served an entirely different function took on the auspice of running a charter school. Um, and so they opened, I believe, probably in, I'm going to guess, 2011, 2012. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um but, you know, it, it's a very unique arrangement for the YMCA to be running a charter school. There really aren't many other charters in the city that are run by organizations that do serve completely different purposes other than, you know, managing a school. And so in recent years, what had happened is uh, the district, you know, was taking a closer look at the operations and the finances um, of what was happening at the school. And they alleged that the Dryads YMCA was kind of commingling school funds and its own funds that it maybe wasn't properly using educational dollars, which, you know, have very strict rules and regulations around them, you know, federal and state dollars coming in for school funding have to be used for that purpose. So what the district did was, um, you know, demand or require that the Dryads YMCA set up a separate committee called the Educational Advisory Committee that the school would then report to. And, you know, I think in theory that would give the district a little bit of better eyes on the on the school and its operations. Give us a little bit of background on all the charges or all the um, different accusations and problems that they've been facing. Yeah, so kind of over the last year and a half, they have just amassed this laundry list of, of allegations um, and includes those financial issues that I brought up that they weren't properly spending federal and state money on education. They're also accused of you know, not properly structuring their board. Um, and then can't remember if it was the CEO that they had an issue with the way they were appointed but leadership issues as well that the district has said, um, you know, are not okay. And then during last summer, the district announced that it was going to revoke the school's charter, um, which prompted the school to sue the district. And the district eventually, um, you know, kind of held off on doing that, I think, because there was a court injunction, so they couldn't. But also, this is the final year of Singleton's charter contract. So, it, you know, at, at some point, I think the district, you know, weighed the importance of, you know, kind of dragging this out and they said, you know, one more year is just going to 
be easier. Singleton's contract is not renewed, so the school will be closing in May. And, you know, they, they weren't renewed for a laundry list of reasons. Like I said, the financial issues, they've also had special education issues. And, you know, they've got that letter grade that is um, not fantastic. So. Right. And now the latest allegations are, can you outline them for us? Latest allegations are that the that the Giants YMCA disbanded the Educational Advisory Committee, which is the arm that is supposed to oversee the school, and that they did it in a meeting that wasn't advertised um, and therefore violated the open meetings law. Now, what's kind of curious or confusing about these allegations from the district is that, you know, they say that this meeting wasn't posted anywhere, that it's been disbanded. They, I think they, they do have a hold of a letter that says it's been disbanded, so I guess they have some proof. But there kind of seems like there's no proof that any meeting occurred. Um, so it's like kind of funny to level this allegation that they didn't properly advertise it. I think they're also trying to keep a really close eye on Singleton as they close. Um, you know, if, if the schools had financial issues in its regular operations, I think, you know, there can be a tendency to worry that that might happen as the school closes too, because technically the school should be returning some funds to the district at the end of all of this. But if those funds are commingled, this can get really messy. Right. Okay. I understand that. And now tell us what's going on with COVID in schools. Yep. So we're continuing to see uh, low, lower or low numbers. Um, I think the district's tracking 268 cases this week. And numbers in the city are pretty much at a historic low for the pandemic, as far as I can tell, a case, um, you know, both in positivity rate and new cases per day. Uh, which is a really good thing to hear heading into a Mardi Gras holiday where certainly there's going to be a lot of socializing. And what's the school's plan for post-Mardi Gras testing and possible spread? Uh, so the majority of schools have scheduled testing dates for their students, um, you know, pre-returning to the classroom after the Mardi Gras break. I think what is a little complicated about that is typically schools have given off the entire week of Mardi Gras. So, you know, it'd be easy to have that as a Thursday, Friday test. You find out over the weekend and you know whether you can go back on Monday. But a lot of schools have added that Thursday, Friday back into the school calendar next week because of Hurricane Ida need to make up days. So I have heard a few parents complain, and I do think this would be a really tricky thing to navigate, that they need to produce a test by Wednesday, which would mean getting your kid tested on Tuesday, which is not going to happen. Right. <laughs> Impossible. Who's hmm. even going to be open to do that? Your doctor's office is not going to be open. Right. So hopefully for parents, this goes smoothly. Yeah, I'm sure the whole city is probably holding its breath. Exactly. And I, I know, you know, the city setting up testing sites kind of on routes and stuff where people can take rapid tests. I'm going to be really curious to see what the results of that are or kind of who's who's willing to take those tests. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Hi, I'm Charles Maldonado, editor at The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That means you can count on us for truth, fairness, and accuracy. But in order to do this work, we need to count on you. Please make a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. 
Michael, some interesting news out of City Hall. Um, Mayor Cantrell wants to roll back laws outlawing certain types of electronic surveillance activity. Uh, the City Council in 2020 passed a bill banning the use of certain types of surveillance software and equipment. What prompted that move? Yeah, so, so like you said, the, the ordinance that's under consideration now would significantly roll back um, existing restrictions on, on surveillance, uh, local restrictions specifically. And, and uh, really what we're talking about, the biggest one here is the city's current ban on facial recognition would be significantly rolled back. But like you said, you know, these bans were put into place in December 2020. In terms of what prompted it, I, I think that it's, you know, in a broad sense, it, it was similar to what um, has happened in, in cities all over the country that have started to kind of more actively um, regulate their local police surveillance usage. And, and, and that's, you know, that police departments over the last 10 or 20 years have really ramped up uh, the amount of surveillance technology they have at their fingertips, both in terms of quantity and sophistication. Um, but at the same time, there haven't really been any local regulations, you know, to kind of accompany that. And police departments in cities have generally been able to adopt and use any surveillance equipment that they want, with some very limited exceptions that come from federal law. But again, that those are limited exceptions. You know, for the most part, police departments have been, you know, kind of free to use what technology they can. Um, you know, they don't usually have to vet any of these things to the city council or to the public. Um, and so, you know, there was a group of um, advocates here. They're called the Eye on Surveillance Coalition. And they started working with a councilman named uh, Jason Williams, he, who is now our district attorney, to kind of write up the, the, this ordinance. Um, you know, the, the ordinance that they originally introduced, you know, I should note, it, it was quite broad, a lot broader than what was, um, you know, what ended up being passed. The original ordinance, you know, the, the, the main purpose of it was to set some type of ongoing oversight and regulation around surveillance. So things that would keep surveillance in check over time, regardless of what was introduced in the future. So for example, it would require city council approval of any new surveillance technology. It would require departments like the police department to submit reports about how they use that um, surveillance technology every year. Those things were stripped out of the ordinance at the request of the NOPD. Uh, what remained in that ordinance was a, a ban on four pieces of technology, facial recognition, uh, characteristic tracking, which is similar to facial recognition, except it, it identifies things like hair color and what clothing you're wearing and what vehicle you're in, things like that. Um, it also banned uh, the use of predictive policing software and cell site simulators, which are used to intercept and, and spy on cell phone calls. So that was kind of ended up being the main thrust of, of that ordinance. What prompted its passage in the end kind of was twofold. One, Jason Williams was leaving the council to take a seat on the district attorney, uh, to take a seat as district attorney. Uh, and I think he wanted to get something passed before he left the council. Uh, and number two, I, I think that, you know, another thing that prompted the passage of the ordinance was, um, you know, once we reported and it came out that the NOPD uh, had been secretly using facial recognition for years, despite, you know, assuring the public for all of those years that it was not using that technology. So I, I think that kind of, in the end, kind of gave it a kind of final kick through passage. Okay, so then why the change now? 
I, you know, I, I think that the, you know, we've seen a, um, an increase in violent crime in 2021, as we did in 2020. Um, and, and that's kind of been the, the main political issue um, for, for several months now. I think in terms of, you know, the way you've seen New Orleans politicians speak um, over the past uh, two months, violent crime has kind of jumped to the top of the list here. And I think the reasoning that you hear from, um, you know, the, the Cantrell administration and the NOPD is that, you know, this is no time to be restricting the NOPD's access to, to a tool that may be useful. You know, I, I think the NOPD has been arguing, you know, fr from the moment these bans were passed, um, uh, NOPD Superintendent Sean Ferguson has been arguing um, that, you know, at least the facial recognition ban should be rolled back. So this isn't exactly new. Um, but I'd say that the political will to do it kind of has emerged, you know, with, with kind of the, this public focus on, on violent crime. Does it undo everything they'd previously done or does it just roll back some of the t toothiness of the original things they put in place? So with, with all laws, it'll, it'll depend on how it's interpreted and how, how the administration, you know, um, chooses to use it. I, I'd say, no, it doesn't roll back every part of the law. As a side note here, I'll say that, you know, th there's more to the law than just those four pieces of technology. For example, there are um, stipulations about not being able to collect immigration data, you know, uh, from arrest subjects, things like that. Um, and those are not rolled back. Um, at, at the same time, you know, like we talked about, really the, the kind of crown jewel of this ordinance was these four bans. Um, and those would be significantly, significantly rolled back. So. Um, when you're talking about facial recognition and um, and characteristic tracking software, um, th those would be able to now be used in any situation where a crime is being investigated. And I know that may sound fairly narrow, but but you know I, we recently reported um, that the city was using it, its crime camera system to um, contest a workers' comp complaint and and. Uh, you know, gather evidence to fire two employees. Um, and, and at the time, we had asked, you know, whether this fit in with the original purpose of the camera system, which was, you know, primarily to, you know, fight terrorism and crime. Um, and the administration argued that, you know, uh, in the workers' comp case, for example, since there was potential workers' comp fraud, which is a crime, that they were justified in using um, the, the 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 camera system. So even though you know there, there is they are restricted to investigating crimes with those technologies, we've seen the administration kind of stretch you know the definition of what is a criminal investigation. And so um, you know what restrictions that actually leaves in place um, is a little bit unclear. It's interesting because it, in some ways it gives the administration you know more of a legal precedent and a more of a legal justification to use surveillance than even before any ordinance mm. was passed at all. So, you know, before the ordinance was passed, there was nothing in, in local law, you know, giving the, the police, you know, explicit permission to use surveillance technology. There's another part of the, the ordinance that, that says that it basically makes clear that nothing in this law would prohibit the city from using any surveillance technology whatsoever to, to locate someone who has an arrest warrant out for certain serious crimes. And now why that's important, I mean, there's a few reasons why that's important, but again, 
you know, you're adding to this law a significant permission to use surveillance in certain cases. And if you look at the city's definition of surveillance technology, you know, what they're permitting here is, is pretty broad. It, it, it includes uh, X-ray bands, through-the-wall radar, social media monitoring, um, quote, uh, tools used to gain unauthorized access to a computer, close quote. Um, so, you know, they're, they're really opening up, um, you know, their legal justifications for using surveillance technology. How is Iron Surveillance and other privacy advocates responding? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're disappointed, as can be expected. I mean, they obviously put in a lot of legwork on the original ordinance, and it's not, you know, easy for them to see it rolled back. I mean, I think, you know, they've commented on the broader debate going on in New Orleans about violent crime right now. Um, you know, I think, Broadly, they've responded to how the administration is responding to this crime surge, which has been, you know, very focused on law enforcement, on on um, bolstering the criminal justice system. Um, whereas I think groups like Ion Surveillance, they tend to think of, of, you know, these surveillance technologies as not only, you know, uh, invasive, not only, um, um, you know, racially biased, but but as, as wastes of money, um, I think, uh, um, you know, from the perspective of violent surveillance, there is not significant evidence to show that that things like surveillance, facial recognition are actually effective at reducing violence and crime in a society. And, and you know, again, they would argue that investing in, in, in those types of things takes money away from, you know, solving the root causes of crime, you know, investing in education, after school programming, um, you know, stable housing, things like that, um, that we know are, are kind of leading contributors to, to crime. So, you know, they, they as are expected, are, are you know, uh, opposing this ordinance. Okay. Do you expect it to pass easily? It's going to be interesting. Um, you know, I, I think that there, it has, neither of the two at-large council members have, have come out either in support or in opposition of it. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's an interesting political moment um, where, you know, a lot of these city council members, at least, you know, you look at J.P. Morrell and Helena Moreno, um, they, they're kind of, they've made their political careers off of, you know, more, more a progressive brand of, of politics. And we're in a moment right now where there is kind of a, a high demand for immediate reaction to crime. And so, you know, the politics of the moment are kind of dictating that, you know, it, it might not be great to stand up and oppose this ordinance when the NOPD is saying that this will help them curb violent crime. At the same time, I think they'll probably be considering how a vote like this will look, you know, maybe a year from now, if we can get crime more under control and it's not kind of the top political issue of the day. This is one where I really don't have a good feel for what's going to happen. I think it'll be interesting to watch. Has, has the DA weighed in at all? I mean, this was his ordinance initially, right? This right. sponsored it, and now he's kind of, you know, not quite on the other side of the ball, but you know, um, now now it might it might be not only beneficial for him, you know, in the political moment, but actually as a you know, as a prosecutor, if if he thinks this this will be useful. Yeah, I have not seen him um, respond. I have not been able to get through to his office to kind of get an official statement on it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'd be super interested to, to hear his take, because like you said, um, he's trying to build evidence in cases he's prosecuting now. Um, you know, I, I think that, again, you know, if you look at the original ordinance, I think what Williams and what Ion Surveillance really wanted to do is set up this kind of ongoing legislative oversight of surveillance technology, which 
did not make it into the final version. So I think that already where we are, um, you know, we didn't get what, or the city did not pass what Williams and, and Iron Surveillance wanted. I think when it comes to the specific bands, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what his take would be on this, but we'll try to get him on the record. Yeah, I mean, it is just worth thinking about, you know, at the time that he was passing that, he was he was sort of making his run for DA on a progressive platform. He, another thing he passed was a parody ordinance between the DA's office and the public defenders. And since he's become DA, he's basically, you know, asked the council to ignore that ordinance. Um, right. and give his office, you know, significantly more money than, than the public defender's office because right. he, says, he says they need it. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to see, see what has changed, you know. In office, yeah, as to his position. My guess is that he's going to do everything he can to kind of stay out of this specific fight. But you know, I think the last thing I'll note um, about like the moment that we're in is that in December 2020, when this was passed, I mean, let's remember that 2020 was also a really bad year for violent crime that saw a big uptick. I mean, this it is you know the past couple of months have been very very intense and very real, but it, it's not like we went from. 2019 crime levels straight to this, you know, you know, crazy surge we've seen in January 2021. Already, you know, when this was being passed, we had dealt with the worst violent, you know, the worst homicide year in in years. Um, so, you know, I, I do think it's interesting that, again, the politics of the city have kind of changed so drastically um, since then. You've written so much about it, Michael. Thank you for keeping um, track of this for us. It's a really important issue. Yeah, thank you. Nick, turning to criminal justice, jury trials are coming back to New Orleans criminal court. They've been suspended for a long time. How long has it been? Well, they were initially suspended at the beginning of the pandemic. And for all of 2020, there were no jury trials. Um, and then they briefly started up again last year um, in the fall. And there were a handful of them. But then uh, there was Hurricane Ida. There were um, a number of things that that disrupted them. And really, there, there were only a few that went. Um, and then the Omicron variant um, shut them down again in January. So they've been they've been officially suspended since January. But, you know, really, it's been sort of a couple of years since they were really uh, going full full force. But they are set to start up again on March 7th after Mardi Gras. Uh, mm -hmm. So Monday. And what's the what's the backlog look like? It's huge. I actually don't have have the current number of total cases, but right now we we know from a filing that the DA's office uh, um, put into put into the public record that there are 150 trials scheduled for for March alone, um, and you know not even all of March. It's, it started on on March 7th, so that is just a, a huge number. Um, and you know you think. Only a handful have been conducted in the last couple of years. So, what did pre-pandemic levels look like? If they're planning I'm, on 150, I've actually been trying to figure that out, and I haven't been able to get good numbers. But I think that in the hundreds, you know, so maybe maybe a couple hundred trials in a year, we're talking. Okay. So, 150 in a month is 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 pretty unheard of. And and to be clear, uh, you know, according to I, I think pretty unrealistic. I don't think that that number of trials will actually uh, take place. So that why do they why are they announcing that number? If, if it's a good question. And I haven't I haven't been able to talk to the DA's office about it. Um, if I did to guess, it's sort of an ambitious schedule to, to kind of keep things moving, moving as quickly as possible. 
Um, so by setting the dockets like this, if if uh, if one isn't ready to go, then they'll then you know ostensibly they can move on to the next one quickly. But we'll see how how that works. You know, the reason ostensibly given for for the shutdown um, in January was the the Omicron variant and its rise in COVID cases. But they were also having a a, a huge problem with jurors showing up for service. Um, and they, you know, I talked to the, the chief judge and she basically said by the, you know, by the time we shut down trials, we just weren't getting even enough jurors to have them. So that I think could end up being a huge issue, even if, you know, even if the lawyers are ready to go, even if, even if the court can kind of move through these cases just to get enough jurors in the building, they sent out 4,000 summons to jurors in, uh, February for service in March. They got, you know, less than half of those even responded. And then only around, you know, 650 or so were qualified to serve. Of those, they get broken up into separate groups. So really, there's only going to be around 160 jurors who are supposed to be in the building on any given day um, in March. And in order to do a felony trial, the whole the jury pool from which the jurors are selected is 50 people. So you can imagine, you know, that limits it right there. Right. And that's assuming that all, you know, 160 people who are supposed to show up, show up. And I think that that very rarely happened. So it'll be interesting to see how it actually proceeds. I think that every kind of player is anxious to get things moving. Um, you know, I know the DA's office and the public defenders, both and, and the courts all want it to move. But we'll see what what's realistic. Right. How many people do you think are are waiting or sitting in jail waiting well what the jail population right now is about 920 um and that's uh you know at the, at the beginning of the pandemic it really dropped down um there's a push by both the public defender's office and advocates and really even even the sheriff's office to sort of uh triage the people who are in jail um and and kind of figure out who really needed to be there um because you know as as, as we've seen Jails and prisons have been have been uh, real kind of incubators for for COVID spread. So it, it dropped the jail population dropped down to I think at its lowest point just over 700 people, which is you know a, a really historic low, and it's creeped back up to as I said just over 900 now. And the average length of stay has has increased um, from about 40 days to to I think 80 days last year. So I'm not sure how many of those people I haven't been able to get a good number of how many of those people have been in jail for, you know, say the entirety of the pandemic or, or, you know, over a year or so, but there definitely are some and, and people are definitely spending longer periods in jail because of this, this, uh, trial suspension that's been going on. So explain to me why there are people that, don't need to go to trial, but are still in jail. Why haven't Why haven't their cases moved forward? Well, I think it's a it's a negotiating process. So I mean, it you know there there have been plea deals being made, and there have been even some some judge trials going forward. But I think that you know for the people who have been in jail for a long time, who are are people who yeah are are wanting to go to trial, and you know I think that that. For the DA's office too, without having the threat of a trial, without having this this kind of impending reality of of, of you know we're going to go up there and present the evidence and kind of that can be harder to to get someone to to it agree to a plea deal removes um, the they, incentive. If, yeah, 
Um, so I, I do think that the DA's office is hoping that that starting trials up will not only move the cases that actually go to trial, but will will sort of uh, result in a number of, of plea deals that maybe they couldn't couldn't get uh, previously. Okay. Jeez, after Mardi Gras, the whole city, it seems like there's so many things percolating and waiting to happen, and this will be an interesting one to watch. Absolutely. All right, you guys, well, enjoy your holiday week. Thanks for your work. All right, talk to you later. Have a good carnival. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>